This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me in uh, the Scriptures to Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. We're continuing in a series of studies in the Gospel of Matthew. This morning, looking at chapter 14, begin reading in verse 22. Hear the Word of God. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God, which is able to make us wise for salvation. And Father, as we look at this passage, this beautiful portrayal, of our Lord Jesus, we pray your spirit would give us uh, eyes to see him for who he is, and ears to hear him, and faith to trust in him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The human personality is of such depth so many facets, and human experience so abundant, even in one who has lived for not a very long period of time, that when we get to know somebody, and as we get to know somebody, we continue to be amazed at new aspects of their personality. In other words, new understandings of who they are, what they're like, their hopes, their fears, their desires, their personality traits. And even after... Uh, you have known someone for a very long time, perhaps very well, for example, as husbands and wives, we continue to discover some new aspect of our husband, of our wife, perhaps that we had not seen 
before. Well, as we look at this passage, we see another one of those passages where the disciples see Jesus again, in a sense, for the first time. We've had those passages before uh, where there's a new recognition or a new understanding of, of who it is that this man Jesus really is. And, and such is the passage here before us. In many ways, Matthew uh, structures his gospel here intentionally because this wraps up the uh, Galilean ministry of Jesus. And that's a geographical reference. If you uh, look in your Bibles and the maps uh, you'll find, of course, the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum there on the northwest shore. And that region in kind of the north of Israel is Galilee. Uh, later on in the gospel, we start moving south toward Jerusalem, down toward the Dead Sea, farther down the Jordan River. That's the area of Judea and Jerusalem. Galilee was to the north. Well, Jesus has been ministering there in Galilee, in the towns there uh, near the Sea of Galilee. But that ministry is coming to a close. And at this point, we're about one year from the cross. Uh, as we move into the rest of the gospel, uh, more and more his going to Jerusalem and what will happen in Jerusalem. Uh, and the rejection of the Jews begins to loom large. But for now, we have one last passage showing us who Jesus is before beginning to focus on his teaching and on those events that would begin to lead to the cross, showing us uh, who he is and what he did. And basically, this passage leaves us uh, with three images of Jesus. It sears those images in our mind, just as it did the disciples, uh, or at least some of them there. We're privy to uh, the first one in a way the disciples were not, at least at first. So three images. First of all, his prayer. The image of Jesus as a man of prayer. Now, we see this in verses 22 and 23. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. That's a very strong verb. He basically compelled them, commanded them, get in the boat, go. Why? Well, if you read in, in John's account, in John chapter 6, and remember I said last time that the uh, feeding of the 5,000 is recorded by all four Gospels. Very impressive miracle to them. They all record it, and that's just what's happened before our passage here. Well, John tells us that when that happened, Messiah fever sort of took over. The people wanted to take him and make him king. The man can feed us. We should put him in charge, right? Uh, well, Jesus would have none of that, none of that misguided understand, misunderstanding of, of who the Messiah was. And so he's trying to quell that, and he quickly gets his disciples into a boat, tells them to go to the other side uh, while he dismissed the crowds. And then verse 23 says, After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, that sort of brings us full circle to where we were, were before the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 back in, uh, in verse 13, where Jesus withdrew in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Uh, well, the crowds found him. Uh, and it resulted in the feeding of the, that crowd. But then Jesus resumes his, uh, his effort to get alone, to be by himself. And it says he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, I remember a little girl of about four years old, who shall remain anonymous, who asked me one time, Jesus is God, right? Right. If Jesus is God... Who was he praying to? That's an excellent question. 
Uh, and the answer can be summarized in one word, Trinity. And so we had a, a lesson on, on the Trinity right there. Uh, Jesus, in his deity, of course, is God. Uh, but in his humanity, uh, as taking to himself a human body, a human nature, he was human. And certainly as God, the second person, he had communion with God, the first person, the Father, the third person, the Holy Spirit. And prayer was a way of accomplishing that. But we also recognize that in his human nature, Jesus was one of us. And Jesus relied on those same means of grace that you and I rely on in order to carry out his life and his ministry here on the earth. We've already seen uh, earlier in Matthew's gospel where uh, Jesus received the baptism of John the Baptist. And it said the Holy Spirit came down on him in the form of a dove. You think, well, why would the Holy Spirit come down on Jesus? Well, certainly in his divine nature, he was the second person of the Trinity. He didn't need the help of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. But in his human nature, in his human flesh, he did. And the Holy Spirit came upon him there at the beginning of his earthly ministry to empower him. Just as you read in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit coming down on someone to give him power, to lead, to do the task God called him to do. Then right after that, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. And each time, Jesus answers the temptation of Satan with what? With a quotation from the Scriptures. Jesus is carrying out... In his humanity, his ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit, relying on the scriptures, the word of God, which, of course, at that time was the Old Testament. That was the, the, the entirety of the scriptures then. Uh, but here and in other places, we see Jesus also praying. Jesus relied on those same things he's given to us, the Holy Spirit, uh, the word of God and prayer to carry out his earthly ministry. Now, what would Jesus pray Jesus would pray because in his humanity he needed to. Uh, But what would Jesus pray? What was he praying here? Well, we don't know. It doesn't say, but we can imagine the kinds of things Jesus might be praying because of the fullest prayer of Jesus we have recorded in John 17, where Jesus uh, is praying and it lists, John names several things that Jesus covered in his prayer. He prayed for himself. He prayed as he was facing the cross that he would glorify the Father through his obedience. And the Father would glorify him because of his obedience. He prayed for his disciples that their faith wouldn't fail. He prayed that they would be one. But he also prayed for the church that would result from his death and resurrection and from the faithful ministry of his disciples, of his apostles and proclaiming the gospel. So in effect, he prayed for you and he prayed for me as part of that church, as those who would believe through the testimony of the apostles. Those are the kinds of things that Jesus would pray. And I suspect that's the kind of thing he was praying here, praying as he entered that last year of his earthly ministry to carry it forth well, praying for his disciples who even at that moment, we find out, were uh, struggling and having a a rough go of it. But before we move on, let's think about that for just a moment. If Jesus prayed, if Jesus felt the need for prayer, how much more should you and I feel the need to pray, feel compelled to pray? Jesus, of course, was human like we are, but he did have a divine nature. He was deity, God incarnate. 
Not only that, in his humanity, Jesus was sinless. Jesus didn't have that fallen, perverse bent towards sin in himself that you and I have. That's not to say he could not be tempted, just as Adam in the garden didn't have a fallen human nature, but could be tempted to sin. Uh, So Jesus, not having a fallen nature, could be tempted to sin. But the fact is, he didn't have a fallen nature. And if he felt the need to pray, what does that say about your need and my need to go to God regularly, faithfully, desperately in prayer? Now, this is not to be a sermon on a how-to on prayer, but um, you know, prayer prayer can be as easy or as difficult as we make it, and it, it can be both for different reasons. Um, typically, uh, a, a good way to pray, a biblical way to pray, to remember facets of prayer is the ACTS acronym: A C T S, adoration, where we uh, praise and worship God, confession of our sins, thanksgiving to God for the blessings he's given to us, and then supplication, asking God for those things that we need and and, and interceding on behalf of others in in their need as well. And that's a good way to to remember the the basic elements of prayer, or to use the Lord's Prayer, which basically covers those, those same areas as a pattern for prayer. But let me put before you something else. Think about prayer as an expression of friendship. As an avenue for relationship. Because when Jesus prayed, he did pray, no doubt, to glorify his Father. He did pray, certainly not to confess sins, but he did pray to thank God for what he was doing. And he did certainly pray to God and intercede on behalf of his disciples. But I think before any of those things, Jesus prayed to be with his Father. Just as a, as a, just as a, as one of your children, if they were to say to go on a mission trip to the other side of the planet, might want to call you and talk to you, just to hear your voice, just to spend a few minutes talking to you because they're separated, because they're far from you. So Jesus, here on this earth, having left the glories of heaven, here on this earth, wants to talk to his Father, to reconnect, so to speak. Well... If Jesus desired that communion with God in prayer, shouldn't we? What does it say about us that we're not really interested in spending just just to be in prayer, to be before God, to be with God? What does it say about our love for God if we're just not that interested in the relationship to seek God? To come before God, not because we're in trouble, not because we're afraid, not because we need something, but just to be with God. Prayer not as asking for something, but prayer as communion with God, which really is is the prime motivation, should be the prime motivation in prayer. And I think it was in Jesus' ministry. There were times when he just needed to go and talk to his father because, in a sense, he was separated from him. He was distanced from him. He'd left the glories of heaven here on this earth. Prayer as communion with his heavenly father. And you and I need that, too. We need to learn to pray and to cultivate the heart and desire for God. Just to pray, even when we don't have anything to pray about, but just to be with God, just to commune with Him. By the way, the Psalms are a great way to do that. Uh, Just to pray through one of the Psalms. Uh, Some of the Psalms focus on adoration when we don't have the words. Pray Psalm 145. Just go through it and personalize it. Make it your own. 
uh, or confession. Psalm 51 is, of course, tremendous. David's psalm of confession there. And the psalms give us the language we don't often have. Last week in Promotion Sunday, the teachers received the gift of the book, The Valley of Vision. Almost always, I begin my prayer time with, with the, I actually just turn the page and pray the next prayer that's there and make it my own. In my mind, I, and even out loud, I tend to update the these, thys, and thous to you and yours uh, to update those pronouns. But uh, I find that those prayers often give me the words that I might otherwise be lacking to express the very thing I'm feeling or thinking or facing or dealing with. Um, so I commend those to you as well. Banner of Truth's book, The Valley of Vision, because uh, that would be in a second tier after the Psalms, which are divinely inspired. So that's the first image that we have uh, here in this passage, is that of Jesus as a man of prayer before his Father, spending time with his Father in prayer. But second, of course, and really the centerpiece of the passage, is Jesus' power. Power of Jesus. Verses 24 through 32, Jesus' power in himself. We read, when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, as his disciples were trying to cross back, the boat was a long way from the land, perhaps out in the middle, uh, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. They were having to sail back into the face of the wind, which, of course, under power of sail meant tacking to the right, tacking to the left, or starboard in port, if you want to be purist. Uh, But you can't sail directly into the wind, but you can sail at an angle into the wind and then back at another angle. But that's time-consuming, but the way you have to do it, if the wind's blowing you in the face. Uh, The wind, of course, is whipping up the waves. It's uh, pretty pretty rough going, uh, and it's very slow going. Uh, And we read in verse 25, In the fourth watch of the night, which would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which was a Roman reckoning, by the way. The, the Hebrews tended to divide the night into three watches, the Romans into four. Uh, Matthew's using Roman time here, since that's his context. Uh, between three and six, uh, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now, probably every one of you reads that and doesn't bat an eye at it, doesn't think twice about it. But you need to know that there are people and have been people through the years and certainly many people today who would read that and say, you know, what on earth is that? How can Jesus walk on the sea? Just, you know, a myth, a fable they've obviously made up. Well, let's let's go back a step and start with a presupposition. If Jesus is, in fact, God incarnate, the creator of heaven and earth, the one through whom nothing was made that has been made. If, if you grant that then this is no trouble at all. Now, the disciples also were astounded, and we'll look at that in just a minute. They, they were not used to people walking by them on the Sea of Galilee as they were rowing and sailing the boat. But here comes Jesus, and he's actually walking on the water, on the surface. Uh, he, of course, rules and upholds the principles, the physics, the physical uh, laws that govern our Universe. He is not dependent on them. They are dependent on him at every moment to continue as they do. It's not as though Jesus or God has, has made these laws somehow above himself. He upholds these principles by which our universe functions, including normally that your body being more dense than the water is going to sink into it. But in this case, Jesus walks upon the water. And the disciples see him. Now, get the picture. It's, it's, it's dark. 
We don't know if there's any moon or not. Maybe the clouds are breaking up. Maybe it's just a windy night. The water's rough. And they look and they see someone walking on the water toward them. And they think it's a ghost. The Greek word is a phantasm. Phantom. Uh, it has the idea actually of, of a deception. They're, they're not so sure that this is not some demonic being impersonating Jesus. But at any rate, they think he's a ghost. They think he's something terrifying and they cry out in fear. But Jesus reassures them as they're able to see him there. And he must have been relatively close for them to be able to see him. Uh, Jesus says, take heart. It's I. Don't be afraid. When Jesus says, it is I, in Greek, ego eimi, I am. Uh, now, how else would Jesus say, it's me, or it is I? You've heard St. Peter, when the man came up to St. Peter to be admitted into heaven, and Peter said, who is it? And the man said, it is I. And he said, oh, no, not another English major. Normally we'd say it's me, even though technically that's not correct. Uh, if you want to take that up after the service, we can talk about why it's not. But it, it is I. Now, that's what Jesus said. But in Greek, he says, ego eimi, I am, which, of course, echoed Exodus 3 when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. I think that's not uh, just coincidental, especially as Jesus is walking on the water. This is this is the Lord. This is God. I am. Do not be afraid. Well, Jesus' power for himself, but we also see Jesus' power for Peter here. In verse 28, Peter answered, Lord, if it is you, and really it's not so much questioning, it's saying basically since it's you, if it is you, if that is in fact the case, command me to come to you. Jesus said, come on. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, you know of Peter's impulsive nature. Uh, John chapter uh, 21 has a great picture. After Jesus, they're fishing, they haven't caught anything. Jesus says, well, put the nets out on the other side. And they do it, and the nets are breaking with the, the weight of the fish. And they recognize it's Jesus, and Peter strips off his outer garment and jumps in the water to swim to Jesus. Now, the problem here probably was not so much Peter couldn't swim, but the roughness of the water that would challenge any swimmer. As Peter does jump in the water there to try to go to Jesus, but this is a terrifying situation. I mean, just the fact that Peter has gotten out of the boat and is standing on water. But Jesus' power enables Peter to do what he certainly otherwise would never be able to do, and that is to get out of the boat and walk on the water to Jesus. But then, when he saw the wind, or more precisely, the effects of the wind, the storm, basically, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus took his hand and pulled him out of the water and said, Oh, you have little faith. One word in Greek, actually. Why did you doubt? Now, this rebuke, I think, is, is not administered harshly. It's just, Jesus, it's just that Peter was, was doing so well. And then he, he, he wavered and he began to sink. His little faith certainly isn't the same as the lack of faith, the unbelief of the citizens of Nazareth we read about at the end of chapter 13. But his faith was, was, was weak. And Jesus asked, why did you doubt? Well, the thing with Peter we need to recognize is that as long as he was fixed on Jesus, the object of his faith, he was doing well. But he was distracted by the storm. He let 
concern about the storm overwhelmed that faith. And not the strength of his faith, really, that was even at stake, but the object of it, Jesus himself. And Peter was able to walk to Jesus, but then he became afraid and he sang. Jesus labeled that as doubting. You know, could Jesus sustain him even in this, in this blowing, blustery storm? And then another instance of Jesus' power, not only that he could walk on the water, not only enabling Peter to walk on the water, but then they got in the boat, the storm stops. The wind ceased. And it's almost, almost kind of an incidental thing here. Earlier, Jesus had stilled a storm. Uh, you know, it's kind of, that's kind of the point. But here, it's almost just mentioned in, in passing, they got in the boat, the wind stopped. Uh, but it is worth noting that Jesus allowed the disciples to, to struggle with that for quite a long time, actually, before he, he stilled this storm. So we see Jesus' power. And that's true for us. I don't know what you're struggling with right now, what you're facing, what your trials are. Some of, some of you I do uh, No. But the problem is exactly that of Peter. We tend to get fixated on the problem and not on the power of Jesus. Not on Jesus who's standing there on the water, humanly impossible. But we tend to take our eyes off him, to look at the problems, to look at the difficulties, to look at the obstacles, and we start to sink. But like Peter, we need to have our eyes fixed on Jesus as we get out of that boat. We need to remember that he is able to do more than we could ask or imagine. We need to remember his power that brought a universe into being by the word of his power. Uh, and that sustains our faith, and that keeps us going. But then there's the last glimpse, the last image that uh, Matthew burns into our mind here, that of Jesus and his prayer, that of Jesus' power, but also that of Jesus' identity. Look at verse 33. When this happened, they're back in the boat, the wind has stopped, Two things happened. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. What happens? Well, they get back in the boat, and the disciples worship Jesus. And it's just the word for the worship that you would ascribe to God. And notice that Jesus doesn't stop them. Now, you have other occasions in Scripture where that happens. Think, for example, of Acts chapter 10, where uh, Cornelius, the, the centurion, has called for uh, Peter and Peter makes the trip and uh, comes to him. And when Peter arrives, this Roman soldier falls down before Peter and worships him. And Peter says, "Get up! I'm just a man like you are." Or you think of Acts chapter 14, uh, where uh, Paul is there and and, and Barnabas and uh, uh, the, the, the the priest of Zeus wants to. Uh, offer sacrifices to Paul. And Paul says, stop! Don't, what are you doing? We're, we're just men, and we're here to tell you about the true God whom you should worship and turn away from this kind of stuff. You know, said so even at that, they could hardly restrain them from offering sacrifices because Paul had healed a lame man. You know, they try to worship Paul, and he says, stop! Well, then you have uh, in Revelation chapter 19, where the angel says to, to John as he's revealing in the, to, these, to him these things, he says, you know, write these thing, things down, these things are faithful and true. And John wants to fall, he begins to fall in and worship this angelic being. Give him credit, at least this wasn't another person. It must have been a rather overwhelming sight. And the angel says, don't do that. Get up. I'm, I'm just a servant of God with you. Worship God. Rightfully so, Peter, Paul, 
the angel. Deflect worship. They say, don't do that. I'm not the object of worship. Worship God. The disciples worship Jesus, and he doesn't say that. Because he is God. The angel was right. Worship God. And the disciples were doing just that. The one object of worship, the one person whom we should worship, they got it right. And Jesus didn't say, stop, don't do that. He was either encouraging an unimaginable ego, or he was encouraging them in blasphemy, or he was the right and proper object of their absolute, wholehearted, full soul worship. As in fact, he was. True, and they not only worshipped him, but they confess him. Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, that's a messianic term. They're saying you are the Messiah. You are the one who is to come. I, I don't know how fully developed any kind of Trinitarian ideas about Jesus were at this point. But this was a messianic term. What they've seen, they said, truly, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Now, that understanding would grow. Even later, uh, Matthew, uh, Peter would confess Jesus in even fuller terms. But certainly after the resurrection, a much deeper understanding of who Jesus was would, would come. But they were beginning to get it. More and more, they were beginning to understand just who this was they had to deal with. Well, the passage ends by what happened after they crossed over, landed in the small village of Gennesaret on the bank of the Sea of Galilee there. And Jesus and his disciples, by the way, uh, but Jesus, no sleep, up all night, praying uh, for a considerable time, and then with his disciples, uh, began to heal as people came to him, even just to touch the fringe of his garment. Uh, people were being healed and made well. Well, this is our Savior, up all night, and yet still ministering, still serving, still giving himself to those who need him. This is our Savior, revealed to us in this passage. He prays for us. His power is for us. He is the very Son of God who is for us. This is the one who would go to the cross, who would face death, and then triumph in the resurrection for us. What trial are you facing? What difficulty are you in? Remember who Jesus is. Remember the one in whom you place your trust. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus as he's revealed to us in this passage, uh, the one who uh, intercedes for us, the one who has power even over creation itself, the one who is none less than the incarnate Son of God. Father, we pray for strong faith, but we thank you, Father, not so much for the strength of our faith, but for the object of our faith. Help us, Father, to rest in Jesus, regardless of what storms may blow, what, wind, what uh, waves may break over us. Father, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.